Welcome to Women in Trade, a podcast for up-and-coming professionals like you in the field of international trade. Kelly Kemock is your guide on this journey, an accomplished lawyer and trade compliance consultant who's passionate about helping young women navigate this complex field, equipping you with the tools and resources you'll need to pursue an exciting and meaningful career. You'll hear candid interviews with other successful female leaders and benefit from their experience. It's time to build the career of your dreams. Here's your host, Kelly Kemock. Today we have a special episode all the way from the WTO Public Forum in Geneva, Switzerland. I got the chance to travel and meet some amazing women doing great things in international trade. One of the women that I met was the head of cabinet for the EU Commissioner of Trade. Her name is Maria Olsinius. Since most podcast listeners are from the U.S., I asked one of my new contacts, Hannah Norberg, a EU expert in trade, who will be on the podcast in future episodes. I asked her to give us a primer on EU trade administration so that we all have a background before uh, we jump right into the interview with Mia, the head of cabinet. So here is Hannah Norberg with her primer on the EU trade administration. So the story is that there's the European Commission, and it's now 28 member states, 27 after potential Brexit, and they run certain things that are what we call EU competence. And one of those things are issues that have been outsourced to the EU. So, And one of those things are then trade policy. So um, the European Commission, their directoral general, is in charge of negotiating trade agreements for all 28 member states. So it's a pretty powerful position that takes basically the destiny of trade for 500 million people is what they do. And at the very top of that, of trade policy, is the trade commissioner, which in in the EU's case is Cecilia Malmström. And so she has the directorate general DG Trade. That's like a department of trade. And so at the very top is a politically appointed person. And that person is Cecilia Malmström, who is from Sweden. And so she becomes the boss. As she takes on this role, she becomes the boss of that DG, of that department. And then she handpicks a number of people to for her cabinet. There are around 10. And there's one who is the boss of all of them, and that's her wing woman. And her wing woman is Maria Osenius. We got the chance to sit down with her at the WTO Public Forum, and she got to tell us her story about the Trade for All initiative. Now, can you give us just a little bit of history on the Trade for All initiative? It's not exactly legislation. No, it's actually the first of its kind, at least that I have seen. And I've worked in trade policy for about 15 years on EU level and comparing to other countries. Um, So what they did was at the time, during the TTIP, um, the issues that were covered in trade agreements changed a little bit. So up until TTIP and CETA, which is the EU-Canada free trade agreement, 
agreement and TTIP is was the EU US one for those who have forgotten if possible and there they started talking about uh, liberalizing other things other than just tariffs so they were talking about non-tariff measures NTMs when you start doing that you start looking at regulation and other issues and those things are covered differently and they're done differently in the EU and the US and it's also one of those things where the general public can get a little flustered because it's not just about lowering tariffs as a cost but it's actually things that we regulate in our communities for for example safety so the commissioner before Cecilia Mausum, they he started the negotiations in the old-fashioned way, like they used to do tariffs, but the issues were differently, and that didn't hit the public very well. And so there was a backlash as she was taking office, and there was a lot of discussion with regards to, um, well, we're always afraid of what we don't know, right? So when people started talking about liberalizing trade with the United States and having similar regulation, they were afraid that the standards of regulation would be lowered because certain things that are that are okay with regulation in the U.S., uh, where the U.S. has lower regulatory sort of laws yeah so it can be certain things like chemicals for example that are allowed in in u.s makeup or in bread and that's not allowed in the eu and the other way around Mm -hmm. and so they were afraid that going into negotiations with regards to regulation would lead the eu to lower the regulatory barriers or regulation laws and so that they would make it easier for U.S. firms to come in and compete, and then they wouldn't uphold the regulatory standards that we're used to. So she came in at this point, and there was a lot of drama going on. And so what they did, so both Mia and Cecilia are Swedish, and I think that's very important in this issue because Swedish government is extremely transparent. And so what they did was they said, all right, let's meet this head on. So let's ask people what it is exactly that they worry about. And then let's make the negotiations completely transparent with regards to that. Instead of trying to shy away, they straight up met it up. And they delivered. And and it's still something that is the basis of, you know, it's, it's it's a document that still directs their involvement with trade agreements. Yes, very much, very much so. I mean, I think it's it's brave to put yourself out there five years ago and say this is our GPS. These are the values that we're going to go after, and this is what we're going to look for. So if you look at that document, it will say stuff about regulation. It's not about lowering it. It's about uh, exporting values. It's about looking out for sustainability, for small and medium-sized enterprises, and so on. Uh, And at that point, I thought that was a very brave thing to do. And what's amazing is that it has upheld very well. So even till until now, they can go back. So whenever they make speeches, they go back and they reference that particular document and say, as we said then. So not only have they followed it, but it's still very clear and it's still very useful. And I think that five or ten years down the line, 
and this will be seen as their legacy. Can you give us a little more detail on the CETA agreement with EU and Canada? Yeah, and really setting the stage for everything else. So that was the first of the more progressive uh, trade agreements that really took other things into account, like small, medium-sized enterprises and sustainability and so on. And they really did set a new, brand new standard for it. So while TTIP stalled and was put in the freezer, the EU-Canadian um, agreement kept going on and it actually was was finished quickly because Christia Freeland and Cecilia Manson really hit it off and they called each other sisters of trade and they decided to get this done and um, sister to sister they did. Yeah. They're like high-fiving each other saying, well, you know, we got it done because <laughs> we're sisters in trade. <laughs> it's very cool. And mamas with, you know, kids at about the same age. And also, you have to remember that Cecilia, once she finishes these negotiations, she has to get go back and get it ratified by 28 member states. So it's like a huge political machinery that people don't realize that she has to run through. So without further ado, here is the interview. How did you get into trade? And yeah, have you always been interested in trade? Yeah, almost as long as I can remember. Because already as a teenager, I got engaged in the Liberal Youth Party in Sweden. And I also grew up in a country that is a small open economy, dependent on trade. I mean, that's what made us rich for decades and decades. Where did you grow up? In Gothenburg in Sweden. And I remember also in my first real job after university, I worked as an editorial writer. Uh, writing about different topics every day, but on slow days when there wasn't any obvious topic to comment on, I always volunteered to write about trade and the importance of getting, getting rid of textile quotas, because we had textile quotas at the time. Uh, or I would write an article about uh, agriculture subsidies and how bad that was for the world. So this goes you know, way back, and so I've always been wanting to work with trade. Uh, but haven't really had the, an opportunity until five years ago when Cecilia Malmström took over the trade portfolio. Earlier when I worked um, in the cabinet of the Finnish commissioner Olli Rehn, I used to sneak into meetings that Pascal Lamy had in the European Parliament. He would brief MEPs and I had absolutely nothing to do with the trade at the time, but I would just sneak in and sit in a corner and just listen because I found it so fascinating. Mm, but I really didn't have any business there. Um, so, for did me, you learn it was a really lot from those meetings? Is that, you no, absorb I, a lot? No, well, I found it terribly interesting. Mm -hmm. um, so, of course, I was overjoyed when, when Cecilia actually managed to get the trade portfolio. I mean, I was there saying we should, of course, we should ask for it, but I honestly didn't really think we would get it. I heard that there were rumors that Germany wanted that portfolio and others as well, so I thought mm, it will not happen, and then it did happen. How did you link up with Cecilia then? What was that relationship? Well, I started, I, I have known her for very many years, but I started working for her really closely 11 years ago when she asked me to come to Stockholm and work as her state secretary. When okay. she was European Affairs Minister, I became state secretary for European Affairs in the run-up to and during the Swedish Council presidency. And actually, I used that time to convince her that she should volunteer to become the next Swedish commissioner. 
Uh, and at the time she said, yeah, that will not happen. It would be somebody from the biggest party in our coalition. But I said, yeah, well, you can always, you know, volunteer your name. And actually the prime minister said, that's a brilliant idea. Uh, so we put her name forward and Juncker had already said that if I, you know, if I get, um, if I get women, they will get important portfolios, and at the time then she was given a home affairs portfolio, which was quite a difficult one, but she uh, did rather well there, and I think that paved the way for her to get another important portfolio, which is one of the heaviest you can get in, in Europe. I think trade policy and competition are the two heaviest portfolios, because that's where EU has a lot of decision, um, decision-making power and competence. Um, that is what binds the states together in... In many ways. Yeah. I think also the internal market is very important for binding states together, but, but here we really have decision-making power in the Commission. Otherwise, if you fight in national elections, most politicians will talk about education, health services, pensions maybe. That's very important, but not at European level. That's not very heavy to deal with education. So anyway, here we are. Um, that was a lucky break five years ago. Um, it's been exciting five years, really. So you went from home affairs with Cecilia, yeah. um, and then you were able to make the transition into trade. Right. And can you tell the story of the, uh, again, the story of the atmosphere when you and Cecilia entered the trade sphere? Yeah, it feels like such a long time ago, but at the time we were negotiating actually with several countries, but the only negotiation that anybody cared about was TTIP, the Transatlantic Trade and Investment Partnership. Mm -hmm. Every time I was invited to speak to a group of people or, or journalists or whomever, they always said TTIP, TTIP, TTIP. And I, sometimes I insisted on first telling them that we are actually also negotiating with Japan and, and uh, Vietnam and uh, et cetera, et cetera, just to make them aware. But then everybody only wanted to hear about TTIP anyway. But that was the big uh, negotiation, also the most controversial one. We had demonstrators outside our offices practically well, every other week. Um, and, but negotiations, I mean, they made progress, steady progress. The most difficult issues, of course, are always left until the end, but then we had a change of government in the US and TTIP ended up in the freezer where it, where it has remained since then. So can you tell us a little bit about your role on a day-to-day -day basis um, and how you are working on these negotiations at this time? Uh, well, it's been my role to organize the cabinet, a number of hand-picked people around the commissioner who are there to give her specific policy advice um, and help her think of initiatives to take, um, how to communicate. Of course, we also have at our disposal a uh, director general full of, of people in DigiTrade, full of uh, civil servants. Um, but they, and they can give us drafts and briefings for all kinds of issues, but it's always good to have people who, may, who know the commissioner a bit better and who can uh, advise her and tweak the speeches so that, you know, to her liking. Mm -hmm. And so five years ago was the advent of the, the Trade for All initiative. Can you tell a little bit about that? Yeah, that was one of the first things we, we started working on. That was the 
a communication that would guide our policy for the, for the following years. Um, what did it take to put that into place? Well, it took a few months, and um, of course we had <laughs> some controversies here with our, our civil servants in the DG, which I would say, generally speaking, are of enormously high quality. And the briefings we get from DG Trade were among the best I've seen in the Commission. But on, when I got the first draft for trade, of Trade for All, I actually was close to crying because that was not at all what I had expected. Um, so at the time I decided that we have to take this into our hands in, in the cabinet and actually we made a new draft in the cabinet. The different members of the cabinet wrote different chapters. I have to say they were not very good either, but this was to shake up the DG a little bit uh, and say that, you know, this, we have to get this really right. And then they kind of woke up and asked to make a second draft and took on board more of the things that we found missing in the first draft. And in the end, I think we produced a product jointly that we can all be very proud of. So in the first draft, what was missing? Just more transparency? Well, I think some of the most important things that Commissioner Malmström did right from the beginning was to insist on much more transparency and to demystify trade policy because we were accused of making backroom deals in secrecy with big business uh, dictating the rules. Um, very common misperception. So we decided to be much more transparent and put practically uh, everything we can online. Um, we are the most transparent trade negotiator in the world today. Uh, of course you cannot put out everything because then you become a very lousy negotiator. I mean, sometimes you have, I mean, you have red lines that you, 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 you keep close to your chest. Um, it's like if you want to sell your car, you're not going to tell people that you will sell it for between uh, three or five thousand dollars because then you never get more than three if they know that that's your, your margin. <laughs> and sometimes, yes. of course, for some parts of the negotiations, you can't be totally transparent. Um, but we are the most transparent and we put things online as soon as we possibly can, sometimes with ex you know notes that explain what we are doing. And I think that Cecilia's approach also to outreach uh, has been very helpful. Um, I think she has had more meetings with civil society, trade unions, different stakeholders and also national parliaments than any other trade commissioner before her. I think that has also been very much appreciated and to make trade more values-based and also as the title indicates, that was a title that Cecilia Malmström chose herself, trade for all, um, not just for a few. Not just for the businesses that Not just for the, the big companies. Yeah. yeah. Yes. And so trade for all, the goal was to be more transparent, to be... More um, inclusive. More inclusive of um, diversity in, in people, but also diversity in business types. Indeed. I am very happy that we have made a chapter on SMEs, small and medium-sized enterprises, uh, a standard feature now of our trade agreements. I think that's my favorite part of the agreements. Were you the, the first, was that the first agreement to actually... In Japan, I think we had the, the chapter for the first time. And because the big business, they manage anyway, but small businesses may really need a help to understand how, how to use the trade agreements. So the idea is that they can go to a dedicated website and quickly find out what rules apply if I want to sell my paint to that market. Is that part of the outreach that you were mentioning? The dedicated website, the training, the knowledge? No, the outreach is mere, more going out and meeting people and, and 
regularly invite experts to give input. I mean, there was a lot of criticism, and sometimes it was misconceptions and downright lies that were you know, circulating, but sometimes also criticism that we thought, hmm, yes, uh, this is something we have to take seriously. For example, one of the most hated acronyms um, four years ago was ISDS, Investment State Dispute Settlement. And there we thought, yeah, there is something in this critique. Um, and we decided to reform the system. And instead now we have something we call the investment court system that is with arbitrators that are more independent instead of being picked by companies. And where we have actually moved a bit uh, the power more uh, towards the government's right to regulate and a bit less for companies than in the older system. Mm -hmm. And ideally in the future we could maybe have a multilateral investment court instead of having a, a plethora of, of different bilateral agreements on investment courts, we could have one that gathers them all. That is our long-term vision. And so your work in doing this was to gather all of the input from cabinet, from you know all the different players to try to gather all of the important pieces that made it into the trade for all? We did not consult companies on the trade for all, that was more internal, so it was between us and our people in the DG. Okay, okay. And to make it more values-based, so we talked about transparency and we talked about making it inclusive. Um, any other values that were prioritized? Yeah, I think also a bigger emphasis on, yeah, well, making it work for everybody, I think, is also a, a value, the consumers, uh, the smallest companies, also the poorest countries. One of the early initiatives was also uh, on conflict minerals, uh, with the proposal on due diligence there, so that it wouldn't benefit crooks. What do you think the overarching effect of this is? In, uh, what can we see in the future? What, what would you expect? But it's been a breathtaking five years if you look at the number of bilateral agreements. Yeah, we got CETA in place after some struggle. We also got Japan agreement in place, which is the biggest so far economically uh, in force. And we managed to conclude, well, we've concluded with Vietnam, we concluded with Singapore. Well, actually, Singapore agreement was concluded by Cecilia's predecessor, but we decided to send Singapore agreement to court uh, because there have been there have been tensions between the Commission and EU member states after the entry into force of the Lisbon Treaty 10 years ago about who does what, who is responsible for what. And we decided to clear the air once and for all. Mm -hmm. And uh, we got a clear verdict on Singapore. And after that, we split Singapore into two parts. Uh, a Singapore free trade agreement, which is based on EU competence. It means it has to be approved by the European Parliament and member states in council. And then we have the other part, and that's this invest, investment agreement, and that is mixed competence, and that means that, in addition, it also has to be ratified by all our national parliaments. And sometimes there are more than one parliament in the member states. Like in Belgium, there are six, yeah, which complicated in the <laughs> ratification of CETA. Anyway, so Japan, of course, enormously big. Um, yeah, Vietnam, Singapore, and then, of course, my favorite negotiation, that was also the most difficult one, that we actually politically concluded with with Mercosur countries before the summer break this year. Now it has to be legally scrubbed and translated, um, so there is work for, for Cecilia's successor to, to, um, to push forward. 
But to conclude, that was big. So based on a 20-year-old mandate. <laughs> what is it? Can, what can you tell us about negotiating these agreements? Like, What goes into that? And, and what kind of work do you have to do, I mean, to, to make that happen? A lot of consultations. And of course, here, the key people are our trade negotiators in the DG or experts on, on exact tariff lines and uh, all the nitty gritty. But we have to regularly also have meetings at political level to give things a push uh, and to sort out some issues. And here I think that one of Cecilia Malmström's big strengths has been her, her way of dealing with people. I think the most successful trade negotiator is not always the one who is the toughest one and who wants to squeeze out the last drip of blood from, from the, the partner at the other side of the table because it has to be a win-win at the end. Everybody has to feel like a winner, otherwise you don't have a trade agreement. Uh, and there I think that her personality and her way of, of dealing with people has been really helpful. She creates a good atmosphere and a win-win around the table. Uh, to open that discussion of what is it that you know we really need from each side to make this happen? Yeah, because of course there are conflicting interests. Um, but it's also about making people comfortable, especially at the end when it is about walking that last mile to really clinch the deal. And Mercosur is really big because in South America they have been uh, living behind high tariff borders for decades, um, having had some kind of import substitution policy. We shouldn't really import anything. Everything should be produced in South America. But now the Brazilian government and the Argentinian government notably have, have changed policy. So very important now that we could use that opportunity to, to clinch a deal with them. Uruguay and Paraguay are, of course, also part of Mercosur. And we would come in as a first mover, and that would be very important, because so far, I think, Mercosur countries don't have any trade agreements with anybody outside South America, apart from Israel, which is... So for the U European Union to come in to that market before everybody else, it's huge for our cars and machinery and chemicals and cosmetics and you name it. And for a lot of agri-food stuff as well. Is, is every negotiation different with, since you're dealing with a different region, a different country, different industries? Yep, uh, different culture as well, different interests. Um, sometimes, I mean, in Japan, for example, we had offensive interests when it came to beef because they are not so good at producing beef in Japan. So there we, that was an offensive interest that we wanted you know, to sell beef to them. When, when it came to Mercosur, it was obviously the other way around. They wanted to sell to us, and we had to limit it in certain ways to make it uh, acceptable to our member states. And sometimes we, um, yeah, so it's different products. But it's always important for us, of course, to consult our, our, our businesses to find out what is really valuable for them and important for them. And, and, see what they can live with and what is an absolute must. Mm -hmm. How much research goes into finding out what you think they might need? Oh, quite a lot of consultations, uh, both at cabinet level and, and at uh, DG level. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. we're not doing these trade agreements because we think it's fun to negotiate. I mean, it has to work for our countries and our industry and our employees. Mm -hmm. And that research is done by DG? Yeah, and also we have a number of meetings also at, at cabinet level. But at mainly the DG consults the, the different sectors. 
So um, we talked about the, the trade for all as a basis for, for how you have been working the last five years. Um, and we talked about trade agreements. So in addition to trade agreements, what other, tr like, what other trade policies were born out of this, this trade for all mindset? Well, I really should take the opportunity to say that, and this may seem paradoxical after having been bragging about all our bilateral agreements, and I haven't even mentioned all of them, we are multilateralists at heart. We do think it makes much bigger sense to have one set of rules for practically all the countries in the world, or at least all the 164 that are WTO members, mm -hmm. instead of having the infamous spaghetti bowl of bilateral agreements, difficult for, for companies to keep track of all the different uh, tariffs or rules of origin and quoting, you name it. So we have really tried to reform the WTO because it is in a crisis, deep crisis right now. And here, of course, I can't say that we have been as successful as we would have wanted to be. But we have put proposals on the table for new rules, for better enforcement of current rules, and also for proposals to see if we can unblock the unfortunate situation as concerns the appellate body where we are running out of arbitrators now because of the US blockage. Yes. So I did attend the panel on the uh, dispute settlement, mm -hmm. uh, and, and they did mention that the impending issue of that. So did you were you able to talk to that at all about you know what kind of strategies at all that we could we could yeah. take i wasn't in that particular meeting but of course this has been very much on our agenda now for the last few years and our attitude was when we talked to our american friends that you know nothing is perfect if you're unhappy please make proposals and we are ready to discuss and see what what we can improve but the americans never tabled anything so in the end we said, okay, we shouldn't really you know, negotiate with ourselves, but what the hell? Let's make a few proposals um, that at least answers to some of the points that the Americans have been complaining about and see if we can draw them out of their bush, get them to sit around the table and engage in real reforms. So we did put proposals on the table, but they are still not engaging from the US side, I'm sad to say. That was the overarching consensus of mm. the discussion mm. was that it's and of course time is running, but yeah, yeah, and no one, uh, no one really had a solution, but we all know that there's a problem. So I, I don't yeah. know what the solution might be, except uh, no. I mean, we we will always be ready to to engage and sit down and see if we can agree on enough for the U.S. to stop this blockage because we do need to launch call for new arbitrators. It takes time also to get them in there. It won't happen overnight. You have to start procedures. Good time. And because the risk, if we don't get this right, I think in the longer run it will undermine the respect for the rules. If you don't have a proper dispute settlement at the end, why should you respect the rules? So it's, uh, it's not like WTO will die overnight in December, but it will be a kind of slow asphyxiation, I'm afraid of. Right, because the enforcement mechanism is the reason to follow the rules. Right. And if there isn't the enforcement mechanism, mm. the rules-based system has no teeth. Correct. 
Okay. Not to get too negative here, mm-hmm. but um, yeah. did you want to go back and talk about the different free trade agreements? Uh, you said we didn't talk about them all. We talked about the big ones, right? Like yes, CETA, but I think Japan. What is, yeah, what is also taking a lot of our time is, of course, managing relations with the United States and also with China. I mean, two big important players. Um, well, we've tried to build a positive agenda with the United States. And we have had some success in, for example, facilitating uh, trade between us when it comes to medicine, saving time and money by not doing double inspections, because we we both adhere to something called good manufacturing practices. Mm -hmm. And this is something we should be able to do also for maybe animal medicines or also totally different areas. We we can do more on regulatory cooperation and so-called conformity assessments. But all this is a bit, it sounds a bit bureaucratic, it's not very tweetable, so maybe it will not have a lot of traction on the United States, in the United States. <laughs> but it's, it's still worth doing. And we also have a mandate from our member states to negotiate um, industrial goods agreement, also including fisheries, um, if the US would be ready to do that, take away tariffs on, on industrial goods and fish. But. So far, they have said no way, because if we don't include agriculture, it won't get through Congress. That's been the response. So nothing has been launched there yet. Um, when the U.S. Uh, they wanted input from industry on USMCA, there was a lot of there was some talk about geographical indicators in the USMCA, and it was mentioned in one of the hearings that even though the geographical indicators wasn't an issue in uh, you know, North America with Canada and Mexico, it was mentioned because of the concern with EU. So yeah, because the EU has agreements both with Canada and with Mexico, where we have a lot of GIs. Um, and this is something I'm not personally maybe super enthusiastic about GIs, but a number of member states care enormously. And they are, I mean, if they don't get the protection for their different cheeses or whatever it is, I mean, the agreements wouldn't get get adopted in council. Was that one of the issues for TTIP? Yes, it was one of the issues, maybe not the dif- most difficult one. I was just, it, I was, I'm, I'm, I was new to free trade agreements, so listening to that hearing, I was like, that doesn't make sense. Like, this is USMCA. Why are you so concerned? That doesn't really apply. But what you're saying is because of the EU-Canada connection, EU-Mexico connection. Yes. Wow. Interesting. That's how it came into it. I assume that was how it happened. Yeah. 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 That's the link. Right. So um, between the, the, the big FTAs, bilateral agreements that you created in your term, CETA, EU, Japan, and I guess Mercosur could be considered multilateral? No, it's region it's to region. Okay. It's bi- bilateral, but region to region this time. EU, Mercosur instead of a one country. It's okay. Four countries on the other side. Okay. Which made it even more complicated to negotiate, of course. Well, so if Mercosur is one region. Uh, did you have to individually like um, negotiate with no, the four? No, we insisted on them, on, on talking to them. As one. As a group. But of course, sometimes they had to you know, break off and go out and consult between themselves. And, and of course, sometimes, I mean, I mean, we had, there had to be an acceptance in all four countries at the same time. Uh, and that's what has made, I think, these negotiations take 20 years. 
because at some point maybe you have uh, three out of four countries very keen, but not the fourth one, and you, know, you have to have everybody on board. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now the stars were aligned this spring. Do you have any sort of insight as to the biggest differences maybe between CETA, EU, Japan, and Mercosur? Do you, do you see any big differences or maybe big similarities between these um, agreements that were signed? Well, in CETA we have also investments, although it has not entered into force yet. Um, that is not included in the Japan agreement. We are still negotiating investment agreement with them. Um, say for Mercosur, that also does not include investments. So that way it's more limited. Um, otherwise, even if it's an old mandate for Mercosur, we have included things like trade and sustainable development and uh, SMEs, for example. So even if it's an old mandate, it's a modern agreement. So sustainable development, you mentioned that, that has to be part of the trade for all too. I mean, you, oh, you yes, trade definitely. for the environment. Yes, no, definitely. And, yeah. and there was no, no modern trade agreement without a chapter on trade and sustainable development. That's, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And that's where we, where we commit both sides to respect a number of international conventions in the area of labor, notably ILO conventions and environment. Um, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement. It's now a standard feature. What is your, your opinion on where free trade agreements will go in the future and, and how um, you know, CETA, EU, Japan, all of these new agreements will affect future negotiations in other regions as well? Well, one important aspect is now also to make sure that we not only negotiate great agreements but that they are properly enforced. When we came into office, we made a study of the old EU-South Korea trade agreement that had been enforced then for five, six years, and we noticed that a number of countries or companies kept paying tariffs that we had abolished because, I don't know, they were not aware or, I mean, so that's of course something that we have, we have tried to be, become better already during Commissioner Malmström's time in office, but that's something that we'll have to continue under the next trade commissioner, much more focus on, on on enforcement and then of course he has other negotiations to take forward uh, we have launched with Australia and New Zealand and we will not have time to uh, to finish uh, we have we have other black uh, sorry white spots I should say maybe in the mark in uh, around the globe India we have made zero progress during these years I think even we could even say that we are further away from each other now than we were five years ago because of the policies that we have developed here and the policies they have developed in India, we are maybe even further away. But the, um, the aspects of the agreements like CETA and EU-Japan are being utilized by other regions, is that correct? Well, I think, yes, I think what is very interesting, if you look at regions, now we have in, in Asia, which is of course a very interesting region because that's where most, most of the growth is expected to take place in the next 10, 15, 20 years. Um, we have now an agreement with Vietnam in place, which is one of the least developed countries in the region, and Singapore, which is the most developed. And that puts benchmarks for all the other ASEAN countries to kind of use, I think, when they feel that they are ready to finalize negotiations with us.
Mm -hmm. And that could also pave the way for an EU ASEAN regional agreement in the future, which would, which would facilitate for your favorite um, uh, topic, rules of origin. <laughs> Not my favorite, just what I was stuck doing for a while. Yeah. <laughs> Great. Well, so yes, I think we set standards, and I think, as I said earlier, no no modern trade agreement without a chapter on on sustainable development, and I think SMEs is also something that is there to 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 stay. Mm -hmm. Listening to this morning's discussion on trade and services, I mean, how how does that get? How is that part of of these negotiations? Yes, they are in there too. But here I think that one of the things we really should focus on in the European Union is to improve our internal market for services because it is uh, representing some 70% of our economies but we do not even trade very much with each other across borders within the European Union. Uh, so there I think we have some important homework to do and that would also make us more interesting for, for third countries. To come in and negotiate with to come in and, and benefit from a functioning services market within the European Union. How would you improve internally within the EU? Well, there are all kinds of strange barriers and old um, special rules for certain professions. And no, no, it's uh, we have a, there is a lot to do within the European Union. So a lot of work for the next Commissioner responsible for the internal market. Hopefully, Sylvie Goulard who is in a bit of a trouble right now in her hearings in the European Parliament, but I hope she will come out of this. So trade in the devices used to impose death sentences. And torture. And torture. A bit more than two years ago, Cecilia launched an initiative during the, the UNGA week, uh, the UN's uh, General Assembly in New York, she launched something called the Global Alliance together with Argentina and Mongolia to stop trade in products that can be used for torture and uh, death sentences. And I can't remember exactly, I think we are more than 70 countries that have joined this initiative now and hopefully one day it will be in a United Nations convention that would prohibit trade in these, with these devices. So 70 countries have... More than 70. Oh, okay, 70 plus. Yeah. What is, in your opinion, prohibiting a wider adoption of this kind of policy? No, but I, I hope we will get a wider adoption and even a UN convention one day. Yeah. What is the objection? Well, of course there are companies making money out of these horrible devices. And of course, some countries do not share our view that torture and death penalty is a bad thing. Yeah. And so this would be like the countries who have agreed, they have agreed to do, to add this type of policy to their internal enforcement. Or yeah, to and also, yes, and to also uh, help us uh, advocate for it at, at the UN, UN level. Thank you so much.